Welcome to the 39th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's audio magazine podcast. Ear to the Ground features interviews and field reports related to sustainable agriculture, family farming, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. On June 29, 2007, the Land Stewardship Project celebrated its 25th anniversary with an event called Keeping the Land and People Together. This evening of readings and discussion featured authors Wendell Berry, Mary Rose O'Reilly, and Joe Paddock. In Ear to the Ground numbers 35, 36, and 37, we featured readings from these authors. In number 38, we featured the first part of a panel discussion involving Berry, O'Reilly, and Paddock. In this podcast, which is the last in a series on the 25th anniversary celebration, we conclude that panel discussion. Ron Cruz, who, along with Victor Ray, founded LSP in 1982, was on hand to moderate. In the second part of the panel discussion, Barry, O'Reilly, and Paddock took audience questions on a range of topics, including hunger, what we can do as individuals, and the role of policy in promoting and supporting a good land stewardship ethic. I'm uh, State Representative Jeremy Kalin, and uh, I'm glad that you mentioned being hungry, Joe, because I'm hungry now. I spent the last five days taking the food stamp challenge, living on the $1 a meal budget. That's the average challenge in Minnesota. I, I would actually ask you guys not applaud until we actually do something about it in the, in the legislature to, to, uh, to end the cycle of poverty and, and um, hunger in Minnesota. But to be honest, right now, I really don't care. My, my head cares where what I'm about to eat is grown, but my stomach really doesn't. And um, so I'm wondering if you can kind of address uh, my training's in architecture, and we're taught to think to scale. Um, so I'm wondering if you can address any uh, opportunities for hope and sort of pragmatic steps that we can take that uh, um, I know that uh, Alice Waters, for instance, has done interesting things in, um, in the Berkeley Public Schools, but it's sort of a very uh, narrow window there. I'm just thinking about ways that we can address hunger, especially child poverty and child hunger, um, and use that as an opportunity to teach about sustainability and connection with the land. Alice Waters Project is is not limited, you know. It's spreading, I think, all through our school system, and I think it's a wonderful thing to support. There's just tremendous evidence that when children are involved in the gardening projects at their schools, that they have a whole different expectation of the food supply. I think that's an extraordinarily important thing to support. And in our community, where we have so many Hmong people, that if you walk down these little alleyways behind University Avenue and you see these gigantic babylons of peas growing and just splendid things being grown in tiny little home gardens. I think the example of that is fantastic. And to get that into the school system and onto the playgrounds and out into the community where people can grow up with it, I think it's a splendid, important thing. Either of you care to comment on that? I, I could add to that that the uh, Minneapolis co-op system uh, does a certain amount of outreach that I think is valuable. My sister-in-law, Virginia Pearson, uh, does outreach in elementary classrooms where she brings in whole foods and discusses them with kids, prepares some of it, talks to them, and, and makes them increasingly aware that at least this food doesn't come from the back of the supermarket somewhere. And uh, I'm not sure that this is getting more kids fed, but I think it's a hopeful thing that she, people are out there doing that kind of work, and I think the co-op systems have been important to us here and up in the upper Midwest. 
My name is Dick Kroger, and I'm with a, a group called Cure. It's Clean Up the River Environment. And we're basically dedicated to try to see the Minnesota River cleaned up within our lifetime. And I just recently heard or read where it says the health of the land is reflected by the health of the waters. And uh, the Minnesota River is the most polluted river in, in Minnesota. And what I'm leading to is if you could care to comment on what your views are on what, how we might use the Farm Bill in Congress to instill land ethics and profitable farming together to help us achieve clean water and healthy lands. In other words, just how does the Farm Bill fit into reaching sustainability and land ethics-based farming and also profitable farming? Well, I've been having an argument with, um, I suppose, an ally about uh, paying farmers rewards for conservation services, for helping to keep the water clean and that sort of thing. And I'm, I really am doubtful about that approach to things. I'm really doubtful about the, um, the possibility of getting anything done that amounts to much by policy now, because I don't think the policymakers know very much I think that it all goes back to the issue of economic justice. A cheap food policy is uh, calculated to give us the situation that we've got. And that's a situation in which industrial inputs, as they call them, that is to say mostly uh, poisons are, and, and machines, are used to replace people on the farm. And if you want enough people on the farm to farm well, you've got to pay them a just return for their work. If you are giving farmers a just price for what they produce, then you wouldn't have to give them rewards for farming well because you see, the idea that a farmer does an ecological service in addition to farming tears down the structure of the idea of farming. If farming well isn't, so to speak, native to the idea of farming, then you're really in deep trouble. If a farmer has to farm and then remedy his farming or her farming with... Um, ecological services, you're just really in bad shape, it seems to me. So I think you've got to start with seeing to it that people are properly paid for the work they do. If a person is making a decent return uh, for farming, then farming well follows. It just is a natural part of farming. If you're doing well on your farm, why ruin your farm? If you're doing well on your farm, why do you want to poison it? So I think this, the question of farm income has to be addressed. If you want young people to stay on the farm, you've got to get the parents out of this economic depression that's going on all the time.
Now, some people are solving this by local marketing and that sort of thing. And those are the, I'm looking far more to organizations like the Land Stewardship Project uh, to solve these problems than I am to Washington and the state capitals. I just don't see anything happening that's very interesting in those places. As one who's worked on policy efforts on agriculture a good deal in my, my life, I, I understand where you're coming from. I, I think maybe the issue further is sort of the assurance of a reasonable return over the long term. Because historically, at least in recent history, when prices are up, a lot of the stewardship practices don't necessarily increase. In fact, a lot of land that maybe shouldn't even be in some row crop production ends up in it. So I think something would have to be done about that issue as, as well. Wouldn't you agree? I agree. But you have to correct that by uh, correcting farming. And the idea that farming is one stroke and stewardship is another seems to me to be fatal. So that if you've got farming degraded to the point where if uh, something goes up like corn, you grow more of it, then something more fundamental is wrong. And you can't make that fundamental correction by policy. I think what policy has to do is limit production. I think that, that uh, the government's proper role is to see <clears throat> that things aren't overdone. Uh, there need to be, there, uh, if you want to have decent prices, you've got to have production controls on these large commodity crops. And um, if you have subsidies, for instance, without production controls, then you're going to have these wild distortions. You're going to have too much grown, and then you're going to be scrambling to make up for that. But to start with, you've got to have a sound idea of what good agriculture is. And then if policy violates that, policy is just wrong. And what I'm saying about the policymakers now is that um, they don't have a sound idea of what good agriculture is, what good farming is. I was saying earlier, uh, I'm not going to say, uh, be too explicit about uh, whom I was talking to, but I was talking to a, um, a national political group who wanted me to talk about farming, I thought. And I prepared a very careful paper about the condition that agriculture's in. They weren't interested in that. They wanted to know how to get votes in the red states. So, you know, I've been just as well off telling them to smoke a cob pipe and wear a bib overall. Uh, my name is Kate Clancy, and I've been friends and friend and colleague of many people at the Land Stewardship Project for almost the whole time of its existence. Um, Mr. Barry, I'm going to address my question to you, but either one of you could, uh, either of the other two would answer it too. You started out your remarks by saying there's lots of good things you could say about the Land Stewardship Project, but you felt like you needed to go on to your readings. I'll give you the opportunity to say good things about the Land Stewardship Project right now. <laughs> well, I kind of know uh, what land stewardship is all about. 
for one thing, and that there would be an organization devoted to that is a consolation. But I also know that um, I, I read their paper, and I know that they've in, uh, identified good farmers. They've given them credit. Uh, they've. They, it's not um, a confined. It's not a confinement uh, organization. It's a pasture organization. Yes, it is. <laughs> it's true. It's. Well, I think the audience is a testimony to that. Uh, people are coming in who have a genuine interest, and I assume partly because that interest has been cultivated by the Land Stewardship Project. And uh, so a dialogue is going on, not just between the Land Stewardship Project and its constituents and members, but among those people themselves out in the country where, it, where the conversation really needs to be. So all those things, when you talk about bringing land and people together, when you talk about renewing that connection, it's just hard to uh, overestimate the importance of that work. When you have uh, the country full of people who really have forgotten how to farm, and consumers who really have forgotten how to eat and prepare food, then the idea of bringing those people together in a local conversation um, is of the greatest importance. When the farmers, when you, when you have a food system that's based on the principle of competition among everybody in it, then the result is the kind of ignorance I'm talking about, inevitably. If you begin to talk about cooperation between consumers and producers, then you begin to have <clears throat> people learning from each other and people realizing from each other the necessity that they have more to learn and that, that, that they must learn. If local farmers are hearing from local consumers about the kind of food they want, that's an incentive for farmers to learn to farm again. It's about as simple as that. How do you produce good meat? Um, how do you produce healthy food? How do you produce good tasting food? All those are questions that uh, lead to a revival of farming. They also, of course, lead to a revival of eating. It's a terrible thing when you think of what's happened to food. Uh, when, it, when it descends from the center of a convivial occasion and a giving of thanks, that sort of thing, from a sacrament, you might say, first to a commodity and then just to uh, stuffing, a kind of sawdust with ketchup. Um, you, you have a tragedy on your hands. Nobody's going to learn anything from that. One of the things I'm proudest about in relation to LSP is, uh, some of you may not know, that it evolved out of a project called the American Farm Project, which, which was actually uh, 
a project, combination project between the National Endowment for the Humanities and the National Farmers Union. And the idea of it was to bring to bear not just economics and politics on rural issues, but to look at the rural issues from the point of view of history, literature, philosophy, and especially ethics, and to uh, try to discover where that would bring us. And it was a fascinating beginning, and I think that LSD evolved out of that. And what makes me proud is that they didn't set that aside. It would have been so easy, I think, become increasingly utilitarian. I think organizations often are absorbed by what, it, what, in the end, by what they set themselves up against because the, that's where the opportunities lie. But I think a night like tonight indicates that they didn't give up the humanities perspective and all that holistic uh, approach to things. Thank you very much for coming tonight. As a farmer, I have appreciated Land Stewardship Project for the support it's given me, both technical, personal, environmental and ideas. As a Land Stewardship Project member, I have benefited by, me by meeting many good people, appreciate that. So my question, not just to you people on the panel, but to everybody in here, is first of all, for thank you for your interest in being here. Second of all, some of us are writers, not me, Obviously, you people are. Some of us are speakers. I don't do that very well either. Ask me about my cows and I can tell you about them. But I think it's really important for each of us to ask, what can each of us do? This is an anniversary celebration and it's, I'm really thankful for the people that came before me and did a lot of groundwork. Thank you, Ron. All of the people that worked very hard for a lot of years. Now, it's also to them and a lot of the rest of us, whether you're a land stewardship project board member or project member or not, it is important for agriculture, it's important for society as a whole to figure out what can you do. If you can't write, maybe you can at the very least talk to a neighbor about planting a garden, where their food's coming from. Uh, figure out what it is that you can do. If you don't write a letter, Take somebody a fresh carrot. Bring them some good food. I enjoy having people listen to the cows eat the grass on my farm, but I think it's important for each of us to figure out what it is that you are willing and able to do. Do it. So it's my question for everybody to think themselves what they can do. Hi, I'm Julie Maxson, and I'm a resident of Rice County, which is... Uh Still a very rural county south of the Twin Cities, about an hour. One of the issues that's facing Rice County, and I think is facing the future of farmland in North America, is the issue of biofuels, and particularly uh, soy, biodiesel, and corn-based ethanol. And I think I know what some of your comments might be, especially Mr. Barry, um, but I wonder if you have any insights or any forecasts for uh, the ways in which our attempts to stem global warming may turn into an even greater spiral of disaster for America's farmland? Well, first, I don't think that biofuels are going to contribute very much to our energy budget. In the second place, I think that it's rather a fad and it shows 
how utterly frivolous our uh, thinking about agriculture is. Only a moment ago, American agriculture was bragging about its ability to feed the world. Now, it apparently has the delusion that it can keep our automobiles running. Just as a personal response, it's repugnant to me to think that we have a right to grow crops to be burned up in automobiles. Um, I think the people who are th thinking about biofuels are not answering enough questions. There's a fertility issue, for instance, that needs to be dealt with. Uh, it will only continue monocultural uh, farming. It seems to me to be a device of denial of the implications of the end of cheap fuel. I think that time is over. And if policymakers and politicians wanted to do something that wasn't selfish, they would put their careers on the line and say to people, this is what's happening and you're going to have to, to deal with it. For instance, if we started rationing fuel or found some other way to limit energy then began to think about how to deal with that limit, uh, you could take some of these, uh, some of this thinking seriously. But the idea that, that uh, we would take the land, uh, which is connected to people because the people eat, and began to replace that connection uh, with a fuel connection, People would be connected to the land because they drive. That, I just refuse to take this seriously. I think it's, it's some, you know, an altogether expectable idiocy involved in it. If you had an energy source that was infinite and without cost and was non-polluting, it would still be a problem. It would be a bigger problem than ever because we would pave more and drive more. We would just wear this world out driving around on it. I was reading the other day that every presidential candidate is for uh, biofuels. And the reason is that they've all got to go to Iowa which has more biofuel plants than any other state and has an early primary. Well, if this is what we're going to expect from our policymakers, we better support the land stewardship project. LSP's 25th anniversary, go to www.landstewardshipproject.org and click on the About Us link. Send your comments and suggestions about this podcast to me, Brian DeVore, at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org. You can also call me at 
729-6294. A special thank you goes out to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician who provided Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a very special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member and would like to support us, go to landstewardshipproject.org to learn how to join LSP. Thanks for listening. Thank you.